Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. I finally feel like um, I can catch my breath during this quarantine and kind of fall back into a routine. Although next week it'll probably just be toppled over again. Uh, but uh, Club Passim, which is the organization that I am so lucky to work with, has been doing streaming shows every night on our Facebook which you can check out, by the way, at passing.org slash stream. Uh, and it has just been like so much harder than you would ever imagine it to be to, to set up these streams and have them come out in a good way. You know, it's it's like Facebook makes it challenging to uh, for a musician to have a good stream and everybody has different equipment and everybody has different levels of patience but uh it's it's all very fun but it's been a lot of work um and it's nice to be able to kind of get into a groove of it and uh focus on focus on things like i I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about other things now (laughs) other than uh live streaming shows but hope you're doing well and staying safe and healthy um today we're going to be talking to letitia van sant Uh, who's an artist from Baltimore. And there's something I find very telling about the way she approaches her name with people. She offers the pronunciation up front. She puts it right on her website. Letitia. Tish rhymes with wish. Uh, Not assuming that someone would know how to say her name. There's kindness and patience in the offering, but she also takes control of the narrative in her unique and beautiful name. On her website, it says, Letitia is an old family name that she shares with a number of women in her family. As a child, she was nicknamed Sandy from Van Sant, her middle name. Her friends still call her Sandy, but she responds to both. As a shy child, Letitia grew up with a passion for social justice and pursued a career in politics. She actually worked at a progressive lobby group in Washington, D.C. until she decided to make music a full-time venture. Her writing does have a political edge occasionally, and she also bravely approaches the topic of sexual assault, garnering from her personal experience. We talk about how she made the choice to address her experience in such a public, upfront, and honest manner. She's a clear-headed, smart, and compassionate person. I really enjoyed getting to know Letitia Van Sant. Her new album, Circadian, is out now. We're going to take a listen to a song from that release, and then we'll get to our conversation with Letitia Van Sant. Here's something real from the album Circadian from Letitia Van Sant on Basic Book. Watch the dying numbers float to the sky. Hear the creatures calling out soft and well. The silence doesn't need the meaningless words like plugging up a well. 
Letitia Van Sant. Thanks so much for talking to me. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, you live in Baltimore, right? I do. Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up? I grew up uh, part of the time in Baltimore City and then part of the time in the suburbs. Um, and I uh, went to college out in Minnesota. And uh, I also lived in D.C. for about six years. But now I'm back in, in Baltimore. Nice. Mm -hmm. Um, and your name, Letitia Van Sant, so like not an easy name for people. (laughs) Um, and I've noticed the way that you approach your name with others is like very kind, yet you have taken control of the narrative. Like you have pronunciations all over your social media, all over your website. You even have an explanation for your name. Letitia is an old family name that you share with a lot of women in your family, and then you were nicknamed Sandy from Van Sant. So that's your middle name. Mm-hmm. And you still, res- like, you have this, like, whole explanation on your website. Can you talk about your relationship to your name and also how you've come to present it to people? Uh, I really appreciate that question because <laughs> um, it is a source of confusion often when I'm, like, I'm, like just first meeting people. So, um I so like it said on on the website, um, it's an old family name, and at the time that I was born, there were four other Letitias, and um, my mom is Tish, and my aunt goes by Letty, and um, so they just decided to give me a Wait, totally different. Sorry, your mom and her sister have the same name. Oh, it's my great aunt. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, so they. They had already kind of used up the nickname, so they called me Sandy for Van Sant, which is my middle name. And my my real last name is Robson, so growing up, most of the time, people knew me as Sandy Robson. And then when I started to perform, I thought that Letitia Van Sant was like... Uh, Rock more, and roll. Yeah, <laughs> a more interesting name. And the way that I tend to think about it is kind of two things, like... They are both matrilineal names for me, so it feels like a way of kind of honoring women in my family, and it also feels like the opposite of a stage name for me. Like, instead of it being like a fake front, it's like a more distilled version of the real me. And then how did you come to, you know, because you're a person that it seems as though like really loves to practice compassion... So how did you come to present it to to people in the way that you have? Oh, I just wouldn't expect anyone to know how to pronounce it because it's <laughs> hard to spell and hard to pronounce and no people haven't come across it before. So uh, I don't want it to be like a stumbling block or a barrier when I'm meeting people. So your family growing up, what did what did it look like? Well, my uh, mom is a doctor. My dad was a teacher, a high school teacher. Um, I have an older half-brother and a younger younger brother who's about a year and a half younger than me. And yeah, like I said, we m- most of the time we were I was growing up in the suburbs of Baltimore. And I feel really blessed like I just have really wonderful supportive family and and we got along really well and my dad is very creative and gets himself in all kinds of um, scientific, inventive projects all the time. Um, so I feel like I get some of my creativity from him. Is he a science teacher? 
Yeah, he taught physics and chemistry and flight flight science and computer science. So he's like ultra nerd. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have an interest in science? Um, no, not really. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I guess another thing that was important growing up was that they had my, both my parents had grown up in really strict Methodist homes. And so they grew, they raised us with no religion whatsoever. And, um, then when I started to want to go to church when I was in like 13 or 14, I, the only place that my dad wanted to take me was a Quaker meeting house because he had encountered them um, when he was drafted into Vietnam. And um, he had really taken issue with how the Methodist church was kind of tacitly supporting the war. And so he thought that like a real church would be against it. And so so he took me to Quaker meeting. And then that was a, a really big part of my formative years um, mm. was uh, going to Quaker meeting and, and getting to know those people. And then I, the lobby group that I worked for in Washington, D.C. was a, a Quaker lobby group. Oh, wow. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I worked there for about six years. So when you were a kid, what what made you want to start going to church? That's a great question. I think it was because I grew up in an area that had lots of Catholic people. And some of my Catholic friends were convinced that I was going to hell because I wasn't baptized. Oh, so, perfect. <laughs> yeah. And so I started so Catholic. to... Yeah. <laughs> and so I started reading the Bible on my own. But I kind of thought that in my house it wasn't allowed. was wasn't really true. But I would like secretly read the Bible like under the bed covers and like have no idea what any of it meant and was like totally confused by it. And so like I started to just like want some sort of spiritual guidance. It took me a long time to ask before um, I was able to go to church, but it was good for me when I did. (laughs) Yeah. How did you find the Quaker meeting services? Well, I guess for people who don't know, um, Quaker meeting is, they call it meeting instead of church. And um, you go into a room and there's pews on all four sides. And the basic idea is that every person has equal access to the truth and that we all are equally able to seek it. And um, so there's no ministers. And uh, so you sit for an hour in silence. And if anyone feels like they have a message or um, some kind of uh, they call it ministry to offer. Um, you can stand up and share a message. So it's nice. Like people, um, it's mostly quiet, but then you hear like bits of wisdom or questions or, um, or, you know, neat stories from people in the room. When would you stand up? They talk about, well, then the, the name Quaker came from, People talked about like before they stood up to give a message, they would start to shake or like kind of quake. And I almost think of it as like a version of stage fright, (laughs) like that people are like nervous to get up and say something in front of everybody. And I, I guess like now that I'm talking about it, it's like, it's not unlike, you know, stage fright performing, um, like you're making yourself very vulnerable when you're doing that. Um, so I guess I I can't quite remember any messages that I've given in Quaker meeting, but most of the time I just listen. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have probably stood up either. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I would have been afraid. I'm interested to learn a little bit more about what kind of kid you were like 
For example, <laughs> I read that you had a poetry club that met in your treehouse. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was a tomboy for sure. I grew up with on a street with only boys and only brothers. And I also started to really love poetry and I loved like the books of Narnia. And so I would write lots of haikus and poems about fairies and, <laughs> and like castles and stuff like that. And I, I really like to make maps and forts in the woods. That oh, was, that's cool. You yeah. sound like a cool kid. Yeah, in this era, you would think it was a cool kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in retrospect. I also saw I saw this video of you juggling on Facebook, and you said that you like taught yourself to juggle when you were eight, when you moved to a new neighborhood and had no friends. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> which, that sounds really hard. Um, so how hard was it for you to make new friends as a kid, and does that translate into your adult life? <laughs> These are such great questions. <laughs> um, my my whole family was is I would say like everybody's kind of shy, <laughs> and yeah, that me moving to a new neighborhood as an eight year old. You know, I'd say overall I've I've been very lucky to have a relatively um, easy life, <laughs> but that was one thing that was really hard for me for sure. And yeah, I had a really hard time making new friends and I was really, really shy. And I remember like in middle school, I started to like want to work on that a lot. And so I would make little goals for myself and I would say like, like, uh, okay, today in math class, I'm going to ask Julia what time it is and I'm <laughs> going to ask her at 2.47 and then it would be like 2.46 and I'd be like, oh. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I just like made little goals for myself. And, um, but I would say also like getting to know people in the Quaker youth group was like a major growth time for me that helped me get over my shyness. And I, it helps me relate to other people a lot. Cause I think a lot of things that look like meanness or look like people who are too cool or, you know, it's just, it's just that people are shy or, you know, people who are having a hard time figuring out how to express themselves. Like, I think we all mm. just need to have a little bit more compassion for each other about how <laughs> how hard it is yeah. to, like, relate to each other. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And something that just occurred to me about um, going to Quaker meetings so much is, like, being comfortable with silence. Mm -hmm. Do you yeah. have that? Yeah. I feel really blessed for that. And, in fact, like, one thing that I really love about, like, if Quakers get together to meet about something, they have a practice of leaving space in between things that are said. Um, and I so much often, like, wish that every other meeting would be like, okay, when someone finishes talking, leave five seconds before the next person starts talking. Because, like... Our, in our culture, like we interrupt each other all the time and like people don't even get to finish their thought. And then like the shy people in the room, like don't get to get their two cents in. Um, and you don't even have time to take in what somebody said. So yeah, that's one thing that I really appreciate. What did you just mm. ask about? Oh, you asked about the comfortability with silence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I do feel comfortable with silence, which is good. Yeah. Do you think that somehow translates into your music 
Yeah. Like I think having open space in music, it's like music is just as much about what you don't put in as it is what you do. So how about music for you in your young life? Um, Where was it and what music was resonating with you when you were younger? I was really lucky to have this really wonderful chorus teacher in elementary school named Mr. Allman that I just adored. And I would go early to school to hang out with him. And then I would hang out with him for like an hour after school too, like every day. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, and I loved singing. And most of the time I was just like climbing a tree and singing to myself, like in my yard. And um, when I was in high school, uh, we had an exchange student from Kosovo who lived with us for a year. And he uh, had brought a guitar and he just left it with me. And so I started to learn if like, I started to write songs on the guitar then. Um, wow. yeah, but I was really, I was so shy that I, I didn't really start playing in front of people until I was in my mid twenties. And like my, the person who is now my husband, like he, we dated for a whole year before he knew that I sang at all. Um, because I was so shy about it. Why do you yeah. think that is? Just because I was shy in general. And mm. I was also really uncomfortable with the whole... What I struggled with at first was I felt like if I was playing, then it, then I was telling the world that I was good enough that I wanted them to hear me. And there mm. was something that felt like diva-ish or like hogging attention-y that I felt really uncomfortable with and didn't know how to navigate. Can I ask about your dad and his illness? Uh-huh, yeah. So he is a Vietnam vet and had cancer due to Agent Orange, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which must have been really hard on your family. Um, he's since recovered, but what lasting effects did his experience have on you? So, uh, as you said, that um, he was in Vietnam and during that time he was exposed to Agent Orange which is a pesticide that they would use to clear the bushes and then after the war like many years later lots of veterans are coming down with with cancer and just learning more about it and knowing that some of the people in the whole complex were aware of that it was like really toxic stuff for people to be around it just made me so angry that this whole situation was totally out of my dad's control. Like he was drafted. He didn't have a choice and other people were making these choices that then would have an impact on whether or not I could, I I was going to have a dad or not. It just, I was so angry. I was like full of rage about that. And then I guess like I've always been a little bit of like a bleeding heart. He, person but like the it just helped me relate to that sense of like I can only imagine if they had dumped that stuff all over my entire country like there's people who are living in places where it was just broadcast sprayed everywhere and I was just upset that like we are kind of born and tied into this system that makes us complicit in violence against each other in all these different ways and like ways that I, you know, my own behavior was like negatively impacting other people. And I was just like in this pit of like despair and anger <laughs> right. oh, man. about it. Um, so that's where that song came from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I also wondered if that experience, and it kind of sounds like, I don't know if it was the catalyst for wanting to work in social justice, but you formerly worked at a progressive lobby group in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk about a little bit more about what sparked your interest in social justice and what your work was like? Um, I can't remember what first sparked it. I don't know. I think since I was a kid, I was always interested in it. Um, but the lobby group works on peace and social justice issues, and they work on everything from militarization in lots of different ways, um, like paying attention to how much money is spent on the military versus every other kind of program that the government has to offer. They work on climate change, on immigration, on, oh man, it's, I used to rattle this stuff off all the time and now it's been a while, <laughs> um, but it's, it's a wide, a, a wide variety of issues <laughs> and it has about a 50 person staff now. And I guess like the pieces of it that I touched, I had several different jobs while I was there, but they do a lot of work on grassroots advocacy and trying to engage people around the country to lobby their own members of Congress and build a relationship with them. So I, I did a lot of work with that. And then I also was um, an executive assistant so, uh, and the uh, the executive director there um, is this woman I really, really love, Diane Randall, and I learned so much with from working from her. I listened to your interview with Monsi. So oh, by the great. way, <laughs> hello, Monsi. Um, <laughs> she's wonderful. Were, yeah. yeah, she's, she's an incredible person. Um, you were mentioning that even when people talk about issues from a logical standpoint, we, we as like humans still make decisions about priorities based on feelings, yeah. which is a pretty wise conclusion to come to. So how did you, how did you like get to that conclusion and how does it affect how you communicate with people who have different views than you do? Well, I guess like the classic example is climate change. There's all these studies that show that if someone presents me with facts that run counter to my point of view about something, I'm more likely to discount the source of the facts than I am to like change my point of view. Often, like a lot of people in Congress know this, um, but like having a good personal story about how an issue affects a, an individual is often a more effective way of reaching people. And uh, this is a good question because I I start I recently. Um, well, I guess it's it's not operating during the COVID situation, but we started a group that meets on the third Sunday of every month that's like white people trying to work on how we can talk to friends and family about racism. And I think it's, there's so many resources out there that I've taken in and different approaches, but for both of those things, like I want to try to approach talking to people as like, I'm a person who has evolving ideas and I'm still learning and we can all be learning together and evolving our views together. And as opposed to like, I am right and I'm trying to change them to do something or to change them to think something else. And I also think that it's like not my job to like get them all the way. Like no one's ever going to like, you don't change someone else's mind. People change their own minds. Like you can just like plant seeds along the way that can then like grow into something else 
mm. like further on down the line. I think it's just like, it's powerful for somebody to have even just one small interaction where you're, you're just talking to somebody that's like, huh, you know, like I, I don't see it that way. This is the way I see it. And that's the end of it. It's not like yeah. an argument, but it's just like, like if I meet somebody who feels differently than me about something, then I think about it later on, like, hmm, like, hmm. Can you talk about your choice to pick up music full time and what the transition was like? Actually, the the main reason that I made the transition was that the job, um, I, even though I really loved it there, like it took a lot of time and energy and attention. And my partner and I were living in different cities at the time. And um, we had tried a whole bunch of different living situations to make it work, but we just finally decided that it wasn't working and something had to give. And so he offered to to like help support me if I quit my job. And um, so at the time he was living in this artist's warehouse that where the rent was really cheap, but we had a huge room. So I quit my job and, you know, we were only paying 200 bucks a month in rent. <laughs> nice. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that, that was like the main impetus for it. And I feel really blessed that uh, he's been helping to enable this for me. And he's your husband? Now? He's my husband now, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is he an artist? No, uh, but he is a an appreciator and enabler of the arts. He ran an arts collective for about eight years. Cool. Yeah. You were in a band called the Bonafides. Is this true? Yeah. We had a band this called Letitia true. Van Sant and the Bonafides. Yeah. Oh, cool. So yeah. You were the you were like basically the front person of this band. It's like it was your band. Um, kind of. Yeah. It was a band that came together, the four of us. And like, right after we had started to play together, my first solo record started to get a lot more airplay. And so they were like, well, we should still call it Letitia Van Sant since now people know who you are. So, uh, yeah, it was my friends, Will and David, uh, mm. who were brothers and they grew up singing three-part folk harmony and, Whoa. uh, yeah. Oh my God. That's they, cool. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. And they're just like both completely encyclopedic about like folk songs and like 90s pop songs. And like, <laughs> yeah, they're incredible musicians. And then our neighbor, Tom. And it was really fun. It was a really fun band. Was that your first band? No, I before that, I had met some people on Craigslist and I was in an indie band called House and Home. In being sort of like the front person of a couple of different bands, how do you think that helped you develop as a performer, mm. especially with all that shyness? <laughs> I feel I hate playing solo. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, so it helps me to like have other people on stage with me that like kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, and also, like, they're really funny, so it helps the whole show feel more engaging to, like, have hmm. other people who have some character on nice. stage with me. Yeah. <laughs> you also have received support from your local NPR music station, which I, I formerly was in radio, so I'm very familiar with WTMD in Baltimore, which is, you know, just basically, like, listener-supported, commercial-free, community-centered, mission-driven radio um yeah, can you talk amazing. about <laughs> yeah uh they're really cool 
Can you talk about what it means to you to be supported by your local radio station, like how it might help legitimize your work or encourage you? Oh, it's a, it's been like I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for them. Like my first record, I mailed it off to them and there's a local radio show that's called Baltimore. It's now called Baltimore Hit Parade um, by this guy named Sam Sessa and he's still around and going strong and he <laughs> <laughs> and uh he played it on on there and that was like my dream like you know for years before that I was like maybe someday WTMD will like play my song on Baltimore Hit Parade and he did and I was like ah and then <laughs> there was another DJ there named Eric Deathridge who then really liked it and I'm still friends with him I just played at his father's funeral um that he um yeah he just was like super super encouraging of me and they put me in this thing that's called the Baltimore Band Block Party well okay anyway I don't need to walk you through all the things but like (laughs) basically like they there's a lot of people like WTMD is a big radio station. They have a a lot of people who listen to it and who are very dedicated. And so they kind of like train the listeners in Baltimore to support local musicians. It's just so amazing. And mm-hmm. so like that was after they started playing me, that was like when people started coming to my shows who were just like fans and not my own friend, you know, only my own friends. <laughs> 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 Yeah, so it's it it's made a huge difference for me over the years. So this album that you just released, um, Circadian, it's your third record. Technically, it's my fourth, but I've only distributed two. So this is my like second nationally distributed one. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. Great Thank record. You. And the first track on the album, you've you've been like pretty honest and brave about this song called You Can't Put My Fire Out. It's a song about your experience with sexual violence. I'm going to read this thing that you wrote about it. You said, I am a survivor of sexual violence from years ago. It impacted my self-esteem and what I felt like I was capable of in the world. I felt a lot smaller. The song came out of reclaiming my narrative and sense of self-worth. So... It sounds like you started this song a few years before you finished it. And when you finished it, it was around the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Um, And then you said that you felt really angry on Christine Blasey Ford's behalf. Can you expand on what that moment was like for you and why it caused you to pick that song back up and finish it? Yeah, actually, I I had just like, there was a songwriting prompt that I came across like years ago. And the the question was, how are you wounded? And that was when I came up with the first, first lines there. And then I didn't, I didn't actually have it in, in a song, but I just like had those couple of lines. The lines are, I didn't run, I didn't scream, I didn't want to make a scene. And for me at the time, I think because it, it like the person who was it involved was a friend of mine. And at the time I didn't want to like yell for help because I didn't want him to get in trouble. Um, I, because I didn't know like what the consequences for him would be. And I didn't know what the consequences for me would be. 
like if people didn't believe me or if they did, like if they would react in a way that was like a lot more harsh than I would have wanted. And so because I hadn't yelled for help, I felt like it was my fault. Like I didn't do everything that I could have to like avoid the situation. And so I kind of carried around this idea that like I had that it was my fault that it was like I was done something wrong and I was broken in some way seeing this whole, whole drama play out on national tv and just seeing how people can like second guess your reality and like how difficult it is to own your own reality and then like to have people second guess it it's a <laughs> it's a lot easier to get angry on other people's behalf, <laughs> at least mm-hmm. for me, you know? And yeah. so I was able to like extend it and realize that there were some lessons for me in that moment too. So when you are talking about this experience in this interview and then in other interviews or other quotes I've read, it seems like you have been really thoughtful and intentional about how you figured out how to talk about this openly. So what was it like for you to figure out how to address this? And why did you make the decision to include this song on the record and like openly state Mm -hmm. what it's about? I think the number one thing that I was most afraid of is, and I'm still worried about it, is I'm afraid of re-traumatizing other victims. I'm afraid of... Yeah, in some way, like unknowingly do, doing more harm than good. But uh, there's a group in Baltimore that's called Force Upsetting Rape Culture that is lots of survivors of sexual assault who are supporting artists and supporting art projects that like help build a culture of consent. And um, I met with one of them and like kind of talked through it. And um, so I felt able to figure out like what are the points of it that are important to me to talk about. Um, wow. Yeah, so that was really helpful. And I also think that um, even though it's about sexual assault, like I also kind of mean it to be more, I, I think I just mean it for like anybody who has a voice in their head that they have to like kick out of the way mm. to like be their real self, you know, <laughs> and that's a lot of us. <laughs> so you're somebody who wants to be more compassionate towards other people. You've talked about that before in your in your life and can you talk about perhaps the complicated process that you know somebody who has done something to hurt you to be compassionate towards them um not just in your experience with sexual violence but like in any situation someone's who has hurt you how you can learn to be compassionate to them well i should start by saying that I don't think that, like, survivors of sexual assault should necessarily feel like they have to do that. (laughs) Like, um, I don't think that you necessarily have to forgive the person who did something wrong to you. And and in some cases, it's more healthy to, like, you know, just got to do what you got to do to survive and, and, like, take care of yourself. Hmm. Um, But I guess the... For me, for me, I started out the process of like the whole thing by being too compassionate to him. 
so much so that I didn't realize how wrong what he did was for a long time. Mm. And then, and then like kind of the song like helped me be like, wait a second, that was messed up, you know? But that being said, if I tried to figure out why he did it, I think it was because he felt like his sense of masculinity was threatened and he had something to prove to the world. And, um, so it wasn't really about me as much as it was about like him needing to find a sense of belonging in the wrong place. And like, I, I do think that like, I have a whole other song on the record that's about masculinity. And I think that as much time as I feel like I spend time being angry at men for various things, like I think <laughs> it's also like they are up against something that's hard, <laughs> which is dealing with yeah. this whole no- cultural notion of masculinity. So yeah, that song Tin Man is the the song you're talking about, toxic mm-hmm. masculinity. Since you have explored that subject, how do you feel like you understand men? Do you understand them better? And how has it changed your relationships with the men in your life? Yeah, I like I said, I think that I used to just like get angry and frustrated at men for the way that they act. <laughs> and then <laughs> I feel like I've had a little bit more understanding like that they are also victims in this situation in their own way in that they like inherited these cultural norms that are also harmful to them in addition to being harmful for other people and like for them to figure out how to navigate what it means to be a man in this day and age and to like try and tread a new path of what that means is, is a a hard thing to do. Um, so it gives me more understanding and compassion for that. And then I think the song talks about a father who is emotionally distant. You know, I guess like a lot of the guys that I'm close with are more progressive and they would self-identify as being um, emotionally available and that they're kind of helping to buck the trend of masculinity. But I still don't let them off the hook on this stuff. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, I still think that a lot of them you know, struggle with things like going to therapy or asking for help or, um, Oh, one time I, I said to my dad, I said, dad, you should do yoga. And he's like, yoga's for girls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Here's a quote about your latest album. You said, I fussed a lot about making my last recordings painstakingly perfect but this time I just wanted the songs to speak for themselves. My motto for this recording process was, if the groove is good enough, you can't go wrong. How did making this record with that particular method and model connect you to embracing that imperfection? Yeah, it was great. (laughs) Um, I just realized that I think after my first record, I had, you know, I had just left my job in, in D.C., And I think in retrospect, I was carrying a lot of this energy that was feeling like I needed to prove that I could get somewhere in a music career to prove that it was worth leaving this other job. (laughs) And then like, you know, it did get me somewhere, 
Um, but it didn't like rocket me into the stars or anything. So I felt kind of disappointed afterwards, which is I've learned is a not uncommon uh, feeling for musicians to go through when they release a record. And then after kind of going through, uh, you know, being down in the dumps about that, I started to write a lot more of these songs that were just like, you know what, like, I am just lucky to get to play music at all. Like, and I'm just lucky that we are on a planet that allows us to be able to do this and to connect with other people in any way. And I just felt like the the more I stressed about worrying about whether or not people like it, like the further I get away from um, the real benefits of music for me and for other people. Um, and so I just tried to carry that into this process. Mm. And it's brought me just a lot more joy and uh, feeling of connection with other people. And mm. so, yeah, I'd say that the the... I worked with a producer so that I didn't have to worry about all the little details and was more of just paying attention to like, okay, does this feel good to me? You know? And yeah. yeah, and it did. So, and I didn't fuss about like the vocal takes because I was like, well, you know, people are, I have a really particular kind of voice and not everyone's going to like it. And people aren't going to, the people who like it aren't going to not like it because of the imperfections and vice versa, you know, the people who don't like it, they're not going to like it however well or bad I sing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I think that's a, that's a really healthy attitude to have, you know, like my, my, um, initial reaction is always to be like, oh, like the, like, like a mom would be like, oh, they're going to like you, but it's like, <laughs> they might not. No, and that's no, fine. It's not, yeah. not for everybody. Yeah. I know you're very influenced by Mary Gaucher's work, and you use the phrase emotionally true when describing her songwriting technique, and it sounds like um, you took a workshop with her. Um, what does what does emotionally true mean to you, and when when that phrase came into your life, how did it change your writing? So what she was talking about is that a song doesn't have to be factually true. It needs to be emotionally true. Um, so I don't need to be so preoccupied with like getting all the facts of a particular story, right? Like I just need to like be more paying attention to like, what is the feeling that I'm experiencing and like, how am I like having that come across? Yeah. That helped clarify for me, like what's the purpose of a song? <laughs> If I don't know if you're quite ready to talk about um, your your dog that passed away recently. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I, so my favorite song on the record is Something Real. And when I was preparing for this interview, I watched the music video. And uh, I had seen the post that he had passed away, and I was very sad for you. And then I saw him in the video and I like, I, I've never, I never met Buddy, but I like nearly started, I mean, yes, I started to cry because dogs... <laughs> are the best. Um, so uh, could you tell us about, about Buddy? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, you're going to get me started and cry on the radio interview. It's all right. I'm already uh, crying. We could cry together. <laughs> um, yeah, Buddy um, is a Mastiff mix that we got from the Pound, and he had a really funny 
giant head and giant paws, but like very short legs. <laughs> um, so he was like a very goofy, but also very majestic looking dog and very kind and patient. And um, he's just been such a wonderful presence in our life. And I always felt like he has just like an old soul like he was always like watching what was going on and he could probably like you know be like well look she's doing this again <laughs> um yeah like so there's, he just, there's somebody in there oh yeah definitely yeah yes so and he was very affectionate like I, I put this in the post but like he loved to cuddle so much that like my partner got us a king size bed, <laughs> which we would never otherwise do. <laughs> but he got For us a king dog. size bed, yeah, so oh. that he could sleep with us. Um, yeah, so we miss him a lot, and you know, I guess lots of people, you know, your pets like uh, more so than sometimes members of your family, like are just more in your day to day life. So it's, right. it's a it's a big transition. Um, before I let you go. Could you do something that something silly that we do on this podcast? Mm, okay, absolutely. it's called the lightning round. Uh huh. And I'm just going to ask you very simple questions about yourself. Okay. And all right, here we go. Um, what is the first song you learned on the guitar? Bad by U2. Batman or Superman? Superman. Wow. That's usually people say Batman, but oh. <laughs> we'll accept Superman. Uh, karaoke song? Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Nice. Uh, what was your favorite radio station as a kid? Oh, the oldie station, 105.7. Nice. Um, dogs or cats or something else? Uh, dogs, for sure. Yeah. Uh, what is your coffee order? A latte. What kind of milk? Whole milk. Favorite U.S. city? Oh, you know, Pittsburgh is up there for me. I really love Pittsburgh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. You can buy 20 houses here if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, first album you bought with your own money? Oh, man. Um, it was Symphony of Wales. It was like... It was like, like orchestral whale noises? music with whale noise on top. <laughs> oh my god, yes it was. Wow. Um, what was the first concert you went to? Um, a Pink Floyd cover band called Several Species. Last book you read? Mm. Um, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Dream collaboration? Honestly, I've been... Working on a project with Laura Wortman of the Honey Dew Drops. Um, and it's pretty dreamy. I really, really love working with her. And I'm, I'm really excited to, whenever we get in the studio, I'm looking forward to it. Flying or invisibility? Flying. That's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Although, you know, I've, I never got into Star Trek, but I feel like nowadays I could... I feel like I would learn to appreciate it. I think you would like it because it's all, it kind of seems it's all about like kindness. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've gathered. It's like a more optimistic view of humanity in a certain yeah. way. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Um, for our honeymoon, we went to New Zealand. Um, 
and it's just they're so I can't even name it felt like every single day I was like okay I thought yesterday was the most beautiful place I'd ever been but maybe today <laughs> wow yeah um, that's so one, great yeah they have in certain places um, they have glow worms that like grow on the rocks so like it's like if you're walking in the forest it's kind of like you're surrounded by glowing stars wow it's amazing yeah that sounds made up it's <laughs> <laughs> real all right uh we did it letitia van sant hey we finished the lightning round thank you so much i really appreciate it. you were very very thoughtful and you did a lot of homework for this i really appreciate it Basic Folk, produced by Adam Corey this week. And we will also say hello to our other producer, Laura McCarthy. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople has composed our music. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. You can find more information about the website uh, at my website, cindyhouse.net. You can also listen to this podcast anywhere that you find your podcasts. Um, There have been over 68 episodes of Basic Folk created, uh, so you can go back and listen to any and all of them. We've got lots of great content posted uh, wherever you get podcasts, and again, at cindyhouse.net. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. Bye.